Well, I am in John 3, picking up where I left off a couple of weeks ago. I want to say thank you again to Mr. Hicks for preaching for me last week. It was great to be able to hear you as well as just to have a Sunday off to be able to listen. There is, there is a power in an example, isn't there? If I were to ask you, who is someone in your life that it has been an example to you, what would you say? Likely you would mention a parent, maybe an older sibling, uh, perhaps a classmate or a teacher, a more mature Christian, maybe a pastor or a, a, someone who is on staff, a Sunday school teacher. Or if you're in the workplace, perhaps you would say an experienced coworker. An example shows us the desired life. But not all examples are living, are they? We can, we can watch a documentary, we can see an inspiring movie, or read a, a biography. Well, this morning, we're going to see an example of John the Baptist in the life that he lived. And I remind you what Jesus said of him in Matthew eleven eleven. He said, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, he said that of John the Baptist, and we can observe his example today And maybe there's something that we can learn together. So I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, and we're going to just slow down and look at the life of John the Baptist in these verses. Beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. But John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in the earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him." A question for us today is, what was it that made John the Baptist so great? We could certainly look at other passages in the scriptures about John the Baptist. I'm thinking of the passage 
where John the Baptist confronts the king, King Herod, because he had stolen his brother's wife. And he was a, John the Baptist was a man that feared God, even if that costed him being imprisoned and then beheaded. But here we see a man that is being phased out. Yes, he is a prophet. That's his calling on life. But if he were a musician, he would have been one at the time that had his songs downloaded in the millions. His albums would have gone platinum. And when he went on a world tour, his shows would have been sold out. But now there is a new person on the scene. And his songs are being downloaded. And people are flocking to see him in concert. And John the Baptist is one that is yesterday's news. That other person is Jesus himself. Look at what it says here in verses 22 and 23. After this, Jesus and the disciples went into the Judean countryside. They are already in Judea. They were already in Jerusalem. Now they're going off into the country. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. It seems to imply that Jesus was baptizing others. But we read in John 4, verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. It says there that there's a second group of people that are baptizing, and that's John the Baptist. We see in verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. So in order to be baptized, you need a lot of water, because to baptize is to immerse people. We see then in verse 24 that this was before John was put in prison, and there was a discussion in verse 25 that arose among John's disciples, his followers, and the Jew over purification. But then we see here in verse 26 that there is a rivalry in the ranks. These followers of John came up to him and said, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John the Baptist's followers were very loyal to him. They appreciated his ministry. They saw him in private. They saw his character. They probably saw the times that he was criticized and how he maintained the ministry that God had given to him. And now they see another group of people that are baptizing and they're saying, listen, John, everyone seems to be going over there now. And, and we're, not, we're not good with that. We're loyal to you. Can rivalry take place in the church? It certainly can. Can it not? In fact, even before the church, you can look at Numbers chapter 11. And there was a time where Moses, in verses 26 through 29, Moses had these couple of guys, I'll just kind of skim this, a guy named Eldad and another named Medad, and the Holy Spirit rested upon them, and these two men were prophesying. And do you remember Joshua, who was an assistant to Moses? He heard about this, and he went up to Moses, and he said, My Lord Moses, stop them. Don't let them do that. And Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so there was rivalry even during Moses' time, 
And we certainly see it in the New Testament church time as well. In Philippians 1, where, where Paul said, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And, but he said, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In the church of Corinth, there were people that followed Apollos, Peter, or as Paul. And so there's always been rivalries there. But as we look at John the Baptist in these verses, we see no hint of rivalry, jealousy, bitterness, or insecurity in his part. How did John help his followers deal, shepherd them through this change? What was it that made John the Baptist great in the eyes of Jesus? Let me give you four things that I think we see from this passage. The first is this. John knew he had a role to fulfill, and it was different than the others. I think one of the reasons that John the Baptist was great is because he knew what his purpose in life was, and he went all in after it. What was his purpose? John 1, verse 23 tells us, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. His purpose was to prepare the way for the Savior that was coming to the earth. And he was to say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had a role. He knew what it was. And he fulfilled that role. In a way, all of us have the same role, don't we? Our church exists to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. That is our role. It's to enjoy a relationship with Jesus. It's to proclaim the message of Jesus, to love others as we love ourselves. If you're married, you love your spouse. If you have parents, you love your parents. If you have children, you love your parents. If you have neighbors, if you have coworkers. In a way, all of us exist to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. But there is also a uniqueness about all of us. And there is value in understanding our role in carrying that out. Here's a story that I've used before. My wife and I have referred to it before. And pardon me if you've heard it before, but I think it illustrates this. It's kind of a silly story of animals. It says, once upon a time, animals organized a school. They adopted a curriculum of running, climbing, swimming, and flying. To make it easier to administer the curriculum, all the animals took all the subjects. The duck was excellent in swimming. In fact, better than his instructor. But he only made passing grades in flying and was very poor in running. Since he was slow in running, he had to drop swimming and stay after school to practice running. This caused his webbed feet to be badly worn so that he was only an average in swimming. But average was quite acceptable, so nobody worried about that except the duck. The rabbit started at the top of his class in running but developed a nervous twitch in his leg muscles because of so much makeup work in swimming. The squirrel was excellent in climbing, but he encountered constant frustration in flying class because his teacher made him start from the ground up instead of from the treetop down. He developed charley horses from the overexertion 
And he only got a C in climbing and a D in running. The eagle was a problem child and was severely disciplined for being a nonconformist. In climbing classes, he beat all the others to the top of the tree, but insisted on using his own way to get there. The obvious moral of the story is a simple one. Each animal has its own capabilities in which will naturally excel unless it is expected or forced to fill a mold that it just doesn't fit. What is true of creatures in the forest is true of Christians in the family. God has made us all the same. He never intended us to be the same. It is He who planned and designed the differences and variations in the church. You know, Friday night, uh, my eighth grader, uh, Elijah, we had a football banquet here in the basement of the church. Had a whole bunch of pizza. And then after that, the eighth graders... And the dads went across the street to Titletown and we played a football game together. I'm still sore from that. But it was a great time. And as I was playing defense, I was kind of playing back safety and I was looking at, at all these eighth graders. I was thinking to myself, you know what? They come in all different shapes and sizes. There's some of these big burly guys that they tend to be blockers either on the offensive line or on the defensive line. Then there are these quick, rangy guys that tend to be the ones that get the handoffs or catch the ball. There are some that can throw the ball 40 yards. And there are some that can kick the ball all the way through the uprights. There are some that love to mix it up and be rough and tackle and and love that conflict. And there are some that try to avoid that. And they come in all different skill sets, don't they? And I thought to myself... That's what a coach is supposed to do, is discover what are they good at and and position them in such a way that they can take this ball that's wrapped in leather from one side of the field to cross a line. And if they can do that more than the other team, then they win. And there's some parallels to that in life, isn't there? What is it that you're good at? What is it that God has shaped you to do? And you are to go after it as John the Baptist did, as we heard in the testimony this morning, as Michelle Blackman has done. Let me just ask you a question. Have you taken some time to discover how God has shaped you? I mean, what are you passionate about? What are your abilities? How is your personality? What are your spiritual gifts if you are a Christian? What about your experiences? How is God using all of that to unleash you into a specific area of ministry. One of the things that we've been doing over the last couple of years is really trying to work on that as a church. And so we've created and and kind of led people to go to the Internet and fill out some blanks there. But in recent months, we've actually just kind of printed out a little handout. It's called the Shape Assessment. And it takes a look at all these different areas It seems to me like that'd be a great use of your time if you haven't done something like this already, where you just give up a couple of hours and you just look at how God has uniquely shaped you. Are you a squirrel? Are are, are you an eagle? Are you a a rabbit? And, And to find out what role you have and to go all out to do that. You can find these out on the Welcome Center. There's a stack of them, and I encourage you to take one. And if you haven't done that, fill it out. And as a church, we want to get that information, put it in a database so when we have ministries that we can say we need 
we need some people with the spiritual gift of teaching or, or serving or, or leading to carry something like this out. And you might say to yourself, hey, I've done that, but, but I don't see where it fits here at Highland Crest. Well, maybe the Lord is leading you to start something. Like we saw last week with Michelle Germain and Barb Miller. Hey, they weren't doing a cancer care ministry, but I believe God is leading me to do that. So let's, let's go out and do that. Or you've heard this morning from Michelle Blackman how God has led her to, to start a ministry. So what is it that God is leading you to do and to go after that? The second thing we see here, I think, in this passage is that John knew all that he had was given by God. Look at what it says there in chapter 3, verse 27. In response to these disciples of John's that seem to be a little bit jealous that people are going over to Jesus' disciples, he said this, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Listen, you've been following me for all these months and you've seen some effectiveness come from the ministry that God has given to me. I'm here to tell you that if there's anything of value that has come from my life, it has not come from me, but it has come from the grace of God in my life. I think this is what he is saying. And and there can be an American individual view that's twisted onto this, like I do this and God does some of that. I'm not much of a movie watcher. I probably sit down with the family and begin a movie uh, at least once a week, but it's probably about... 10 to 20% where I actually make it through the end of the movie. But I can remember several, several years ago, we sat down and watched this old movie called Shenandoah, and Jimmy Stewart was in it. And I, I made it through about 20 minutes of it. But the one point that I remember in this movie was the prayer that he offered. And I found that prayer, and let me just offer it to you. It says this, Lord, we cleared this land. This is right before a meal. He said, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it sold it, and harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eaten if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We were dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel. But we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for the food we're about to eat. Amen. Now that is not at all what John the Baptist had in mind. John the Baptist was like, listen, God's given me this role. And if I could go back to what, what Michelle said, God has equipped me for this role as I have followed through an obedience. And if there's anything good that you've seen from me, it's what, it's what God has done. Isn't it true what Job said? Naked I came into this world. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. I mean, you think about it. What is it in life that we can take credit for? When a little child is in their mother's womb, they can't take credit for the lung, the heart, the kidney, the ear, the nose, the eyes. It has been given to them. Many of you have been there when that child comes out. I've been there. They do not come out with their own shoes or their own stocking cap or their own onesie. They don't come out with a bottle of milk. All of that has been given to them. And if that's true in the physical life, and it is, it's also true of the spiritual life and the spiritual birth. Everything 
has been given to us. And so John the Baptist is saying, look, if you see anything good in me, it's by the grace of God. I think that too is what made him great. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Martin Luther said, God created the world out of nothing. When I realize that I am nothing, perhaps God can create something out of me too. Here's the third thing that I think we see in John the Baptist's life that made him great. John knew that joy came in fulfilling his role. Look at what it says here in verse 29. Now again, he's, he's kind of talking his, his followers down who are upset that everyone's flocking to hear Jesus and they're seeing Jesus, his disciples are baptizing other, and he says this in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, guys, I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. And when you go to a wedding, you do not come to honor the best man. You come to honor the groom and the bride. There have been times where I've had the privilege of officiating some weddings, and I'm, I'm standing right here in the middle, and, and at the end of that, I'll... I'll, I'll I'll turn to the couple and I'll turn to the people in the auditorium and I'll say something like, I now pronounce them husband and wife. You may now kiss the bride. And you know what any pastor is going to do? He's going to get out of the way as fast as he can because that moment is not about them at all, is it? It's about the groom. It's about the bride. And John the Baptist is saying, listen, guys, my life has never been about me. I'm just the best man here. And I get, to, I get to turn it over to the groom, to Jesus. He is the one that is to be honored. William Barclay, in his uh, commentator, provided some more information about the responsibility of this friend of the groom. Let me read to you a few things here that was this best man's responsibility. He said the friend of the bridegroom had a unique place in a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and bridegroom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad he let him in, and he went away rejoicing, for his task was complete. And John the Baptist is saying, that's me. I've, I've got to fulfill my role. And do you see what it says? My joy is complete. Now, at a much more shallow level, probably all of us in this room have a hobby that brings us some happiness. I'm looking over here at a woodworker. And when he gets in working in his wood shop, he loves working with wood and and he is content doing that. It could be that you're in a crochet and and you love to knit. And if you can just do that, that just seems to bring you happiness. 
It could be that you love to play an instrument or to draw. I have a brother that went to the military and he came out and he wanted to get a, a bachelor's degree and he was going to pursue a degree in marketing. And he just happened to take an art class in pottery. And when he did it, he thought, I love this. And so now his career is kind of taking him down that path. I have a great friend from high school, my college roommate, that, that was the valedictorian of our small little high school class. He could have done anything with his life, but he loves basketball. And for the last 20, 25 years, he's coached basketball because that is his passion. And, and that is true at just a hobby level. But what about when God has given you a specific function, a role like John the Baptist, and you've been able to carry it out? And he says there in verse 29, my joy is now complete. Has God shaped you for something specific? Are you carrying that out? Could it be, could it be that one of the reasons that you might be lacking joy in recent days is you're not fulfilling what God has asked you to do? Then finally, fourthly here, what was it that made John the Baptist great? John wanted to decrease so that Jesus would Increase. You see it there in verse 30. He's telling these guys that are his followers that are upset that people are now flocking to Jesus. He says, listen here. This has never been about me. I've only been the, the best man. This is all about Jesus. And use, notice the word must. It's used twice in verse 30. He must increase. And I must decrease this is what has to take place. My, my music-making days are over. My touring days are over. I'm off the stage. It's now Jesus' stage from here forevermore. And I'm glad to give it up. When the great missionary to India, William Carey, lay dying, he told his friend, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. John the Baptist was being replaced. He was being phased out. And get this, loved ones, he was happy about it. Why? Because his life was about Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. Do you find yourself at this point today where you feel like you're being phased out? where there seems to be someone else who is taking your place. I came across a story this week of one pastor by the name of H.B. Meyer. He was a famous preacher, but in his early days, he would go out in front of his church, and he would see one carriage after another passing his church. And they were going to a church called the Great Metropolitan Tabernacle, who had Charles Spurgeon as the pastor. And people would go by. And that was hard for F.B. Meyer. And then later in life, after F.B. Meyer had passed his prime, God used him mightily in his ministry, but now he is older in his years. And D.L. Moody had asked him to come and preach. And while he went to preach, he asked D.L. Moody had asked another guy named G. Campbell Morgan. And G. Campbell Morgan had flocks of crowds come to hear him. 
But F.B. Meyer just had a small scattering of those that came to hear him. That too was hard for F.B. Meyer to take. But later he was heard telling some people, Hey, have you heard Campbell Morgan preach? Did you hear that message this morning? My God is upon that man. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is the attitude of John the Baptist. If God is going to use that guy, may, may God use him to increase. And it's okay by me if he decreases. So who's increasing in your life? Is, is Jesus' influence and rule increasing? Or is yourself Several years ago, I remember coming across this little diagram. It's actually three different diagrams. It's on the back of your outline. I think I want to bring up the first slide. This is by Campus Crusade for Christ. I think Bill Bright had something to do with this. He said there's really three different ways to live. The first, this little circle represents your life. And you'll see that chair represents a throne. Who's in control of your life? And you'll see a capital S that represents yourself. Who's directing your life? Is it self? Are are you calling the shots? Are you doing what you want with your life? Meanwhile, you have the gospel. You have Jesus outside of your life. You've chosen not to let him in. You'd rather remain in your sins rather than to be forgiven of your sins. Why would someone want Jesus to increase in their life. Look what it says here in verses 31 through 36. I think there's at least seven different things that this passage says about Jesus. Number one, verse 31, he who comes from above. Jesus comes from above and is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. That's your second thing. Jesus is above all. We see in verse 32, he bears witness to what we have seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Listen to what else it says here in verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Here's the third thing it says here. God speaks the word, I'm sorry, Jesus speaks the word of God. The fourth thing, it says, for he gives the Spirit without measure. God has given the Spirit to Jesus without measure. It also says in verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. There's the fifth thing. And we can finally see in verse 36, what you do with Jesus determines your eternity. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So what do you do with Jesus? Do you, do you leave him out and say, no, I do not want forgiveness of my sin. I, I want to control my own life. There's a second way that people can live, and they can actually be Christians. Listen to this. They can say, I want Jesus in my life. I, I want to be forgiven of my sins. But I want to remain Lord I want to remain in control that I can make all of my own decisions. And so this leads in a legalistic attitude, impure thoughts, jealousy, guilt, worry, discouragement, critical spirit, frustration. can be aimless because you're just kind of pursuing your own thing, fear, 
ignorance of a spiritual heritage, unbelief, disobedience, loss of love for God and others, poor prayer life, no desire for Bible study. It could be that there is a host of people that would say, this is the best accurate description of my life here today. But you know, there's another way to live. Let's look at this third slide. And this is the Christ-directed life. This is the life that says, Jesus, I want you to increase and I want to decrease. Yes, I, I might be my life here, but it's a, it's a lowercase s. And I am off the throne. I'm saying, Jesus, you lead every area of my life. And as a result, we have his spirit that works in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. It is a life that is Christ-centered and powered by the Spirit, introduces others to Christ, has an effective prayer life, understands God's Word, trusts God, and obeys God. So I would ask you today, which one of these honestly represents your life? Are you still in your sins? Are you still sitting at the throne of your own life? Or have you asked Jesus to be the king of your life? What made John the Baptist great as we look at his example to us today? I believe a part of that is he said, Jesus, you're king. Jesus, you sit. You direct my life. Why don't we give that some thought right now as we prepare to to sing our song of invitation and just reflection Who is it that is directing your life? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we could hear truth today. We could see an example lived out for us of a man that was of flesh and blood. He may have had a unique role that no one else in this room has, but nonetheless, he had a role, and by your grace, you helped him to fulfill that. And you've called us all here to know Jesus, to make Jesus known. You've also made us a little bit different. And I pray that you would help us to to learn what that difference is and then give us the grace to carry out whatever ministry you have for us. And then I pray now that you would help us to take an honest look at our lives, to ask ourselves, who do we want to increase in our life? Is it ourself or is it Jesus? Who is ruling? Who is directing our life right now? Lord, I pray for those right now that are not able to answer that Jesus is directing it. I pray that you would bring conviction to them and they would find the the great mercy that we sing about, how how it it is available to receive forgiveness. And you can transform that they would say, I want Jesus to be directing my life. And they can settle that right now. I pray that that would take place. And then they also pray for those who who have Jesus on the outside of their life. Oh, Lord, would would you bring them to a point of asking forgiveness for their sins, believing that Jesus died for them, was raised to life, that they might experience this new life that Christ might direct their lives to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.